Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Do you work in media? Have you wrestled with temperamental CMS platforms before? If the thought of content management systems makes you shudder, there's a new publishing solution built just for you. Glide Publishing Platform is an AI-enhanced SaaS headless CMS. It makes publishing content intuitive and enjoyable again. Key features let you easily analyze performance, collaborate in real time, and publish across the web. Major publishers are already using Glide Publishing Platform to produce content with ease. If you're ready to say goodbye to CMS frustrations, visit Glide at www.gpp.io. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly exploration of the fascinating and contested world of media. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, one of the world's top photojournalists, Lindsay Adario, talks to us about her career on the front line and the story behind perhaps the defining image of the war in Ukraine so far. When we came across the street, it was still very tense and the area was still obviously under fire. And I came upon the feet of these four bodies, and I was in shock, and I was trying to figure out what what was before me, and I zeroed in on these little moon boots, and I thought, oh, Jesus, like, I have a child, you know, the, that that's a child. And it dawned on me that I was looking at the bodies of what I thought was a family. We discussed the challenges of being a conflict photographer in an age of disinformation and social media. And she has fascinating perspectives about the journalism and images coming out of Gaza. Listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And Media Confidential is on X slash Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod. So, Lionel, uh, welcome to London. It's uh, <laughs> You're an infrequent visitor to these shores nowadays. But anyway, it's very nice to see you in person. Nice to be back, Alan. So I think you got back just as the uh, phone hacking scandal burst back into life with the judgment in favor of Prince Harry. What did you make of that? Well, Prince Harry, after a, a number of legal reverses, has got maybe, I don't know what you'd say, two thirds of a good judgment here. I mean, he's certainly got a judge to find that the Mirror Group, um, under the editor then, Piers Morgan, was engaged in, in phone hacking. And the suggestion, in fact, it's probably more than that, the charges that Piers Morgan is well aware of what was going on. And I must say, I was at the pub, the party on Friday night in Kensington with Piers Morgan, a bunch of um, media people and a few celebrities, you know, just happened to be there. And he vigorously denies it. 
and it issued a blistering statement there too. Well, hold on a minute, because I listened to a statement and it's quite a narrow denial in my view. He, what he said was, I never hacked a phone myself, well, as if any editor would, and I never asked anybody to do that. What he's not denying, and I think he can't deny now because the judge has more or less said um, it, it's completely implausible to deny that he was aware of phone hacking. I mean, there are, there are a number of instances where he's actually instructed people how to hack phones or warned them that their phones could be hacked. So I think we can take it that he knew it was going on. Uh, and that places him, I think, in some jeopardy. Um, the the victims of phone hacking are now saying the police must um, investigate him. And I think that's why his denials now have got more narrow. Yeah, I wouldn't like to come across as Piers Morgan's defence attorney here. Uh, I agree with you. It's a narrow denial. By the way, that that is the formula that he's been sticking to for a number of years, that it may have gone on, but he didn't know about it. He never, he certainly never instructed anybody. But he, he insists that he's ready to fight. He was never asked to appear in court. Uh, he does expect this legal wrangle to go on, though. I think there are two reasons why this story won't go away. Three reasons. Um, one is obviously the, the queue of people who have been hacked who are guaranteed usually six-figure sums uh, because uh, certainly news doesn't want uh, any of these cases to come into court. Uh, the second is that Leveson 2, the second part of the Leveson inquiry, which was supposed to deal with this, was scrapped under pressure from the newspaper industry. So actually, this is really the only way of um, bringing this stuff out into the open whether it would have been better to just have a clean sweep and do it all in Leveson too, uh, I don't know. But but it was Matt Hancock as culture secretary who killed it off. Um, and you could only imagine the pressure he was under. And the third is that, that there are people still at the top of the newspaper industry in this country, or the media industry, Piers Morgan's one of them, whose names keep coming up in the in the documentation. And you have to say that Rebecca Brooks at News is another. Uh, she was put back in as CEO of News UK, as it's now called. So she's in charge of The Times, but also The Sun, uh, and also of Talk TV. So she's hired Piers Morgan. Uh, and you think, as long as these people whose best defense is, I had no idea what was going on in my own company are back in charge, then it's unlikely to go away. And I'm wondering, Lionel, if you can think of a single industry where things had gone as badly and catastrophically wrong as they did uh, over phone hacking, would still have the same chief executive in charge? Well, the restoration to power of Rebecca Brooks was quite extraordinary, as you know. I mean, she did face trial. She was acquitted. But Rupert Murdoch's extraordinarily close to her, loyal to her, and that's why she, she came back in. But, of course, many, many, many questions about what she knew and when she knew it. We should just add one thing that, that's actually breaking as we're on air, as it were, uh, Lionel, which is uh, National Public Radio in the United States has written a piece about Will Lewis, the former Telegraph editor who was until recently bidding for the Telegraph and has now gone in as publisher of the Washington Post. And National Public Radio has done some reporting on how his name has cropped up in recent court actions about, uh, about phone hacking. 
And the nub of the accusation is that Will Lewis, and we should declare that we both know um, Will, he, he was sent in as uh, the quotes, the cleanup guy after the, the phone hacking scandal really broke into the open in 2011. And uh, the NPR story says that quotes, Lewis made quotes, false, misleading and or materially incomplete statements to the police. And that essentially, in, in essence, he was part of the cover up instead of being the cleanup guy. He was brought in by News Corporation to work directly with Rebecca Brooks, as you say, to be the fireman cleanup person. The, also, the allegation is that some 30 million emails were lost, um, were erased after he came in. Now, some of that process was underway. But of course, when people said, where are the emails before 2008, all of this had gone. And this this was part of what Lewis described in an email as email migration. Will Lewis is quoted in the story as as not wanting to comment, and I, I know that he's denied these kinds of accusations in the past, so we, we have to say that, and we have to say that these are just allegations that have uh, appeared in the litigation and haven't been tested in court. But it's potentially, it's one to watch because it's potentially embarrassing for Lewis in his new role and you and I know, uh, Lionel, that American papers are a very high ethical standards. Allegations only, but he will face some very awkward questions, I think, in coming days. And I'm sure Jeff Bezos, as owner of the Washington Post, who personally brought in, and by the way, uh, I've known William Lewis for 25 years. He worked for me. He has knighted, we should call him Sir William Lewis. Um, Bezos, I'm sure, will be asking questions about this. And and they're very serious allegations. Um, the, the the other interesting thing this week was the uh, the culture committee's verdict on Samir Shah. We we talked a bit about this last week, but um, unusually, I think for the for such a committee, it came out with a very lukewarm endorsement of Shah. They said this is um, Samir Shah, who will probably be the next chairman of the BBC. But they, they said, okay, he's appointable. But we're not convinced he's made of strong enough material to stand up to the BBC leadership, which is his job. And that's, that, that sort of mirrors, I think, what we were saying last week, that on on paper, he's got a good pedigree. But that's a, it, you know, it's a it's a testing ground. And he was asked all these questions about Robbie Gibb and other things uh, and really dodged them. And the, the members said, we want him back within three months if he gets the job to really put the thumbscrews on him. Well, it sounds like I'm going to be the defence attorney for this uh, podcast here, but <laughs> Samir was clearly advised, don't make any headlines, be low-key, don't antagonise the committee. And yes, he, he comprehensively flunked the Robbie Gibb test uh, that you've set up correctly uh, these past few weeks. I was talking to a university president last week in New York after the catastrophic performance of the MIT head, Harvard head, and UPenn head facing questions about whether they were tolerating anti-Semitism on campus. And of course, they also gave loyally answers and got absolutely hammered. I suspect Shah has decided he'd play even safer. And so he's also got mildly hammered. Um, he'll be back. I think he becomes chair, but he'll be back in front of that committee. Don't forget the special offer from Prospect magazine, which means you can enjoy Prospect's journalism for a full month absolutely free. 
You can read all the best long reads, commentary and cultural criticism with new writing added daily to our website, as well as the entire 28-year archive. Take advantage of this great deal by searching for Prospect One Month Free Trial. Well, Alan, we've got a special guest on now, the distinguished and experienced war photographer, Lindsay Adario. Uh, she's been on the ground doing unbelievably courageous and top-class work in Afghanistan, Ukraine, Libya, Iraq. She's been kidnapped twice. She is a freelancer, but often works for the New York Times, cited for the Pulitzer. I, I, I'm a huge admirer, and I, I was so pleased that she came on. I love the uh, humanity in her work, as she's about to tell us. She, of course, she does the, the tanks and the guns and the and the bombs and the missiles, but she's always looking for the the human victims of war, and that's what I think makes her work so powerful. We spoke to Lindsay Adario a couple of weeks ago, and I started by asking her about photojournalism in an age of disinformation and with an increasing number of reasons to potentially distrust images, especially on social media. It is, of course, a very challenging time. I've been covering conflict for over two decades, kind of all around the world. And I think the first struggle started with the fake news quote, sort of, you know, we had leaders around the world who weren't happy with the coverage or who didn't welcome journalist coverage of whatever conflict or whatever was unfolding in their countries. And so they just sort of discredited journalists by saying that's fake news. And now we have the issue of AI, uh, you know, where images are actually fabricated to look like reality. So I think there are uh, several challenges going on in addition to the actual challenge of trying to cover a conflict, uh, getting access to a conflict, being able to report freely without being targeted by various governments and killed. Uh, I myself have been taken hostage twice uh, while covering, while doing my job as a journalist. In Libya and in Iraq uh, in 2004, right outside of Fallujah, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones who actually survived. Uh, our driver in Libya did not. And so I think there are many challenges, of course, to being a war correspondent and a war photographer. The immunity that the journalists used to have, I mean, it, it used to be the case. Maybe, maybe this is ancient history now. The, the, the people would not be targeted, would not target journalists. That, that seems to have gone completely now. It's yeah, I mean, I'm. this is a podcast, so you can't see me sort of smirking and smiling back here. But, you know, I, I would say I probably haven't had press on my flak jacket or anywhere visible in years, because uh, even covering the war in Ukraine, I mean, Russians uh, have targeted journalists. And, you know, we have been told in no uncertain terms that it's more dangerous to wear the signed press or to have press written on our vehicles than not. There was the war in Syria where the kidnapping was quite high. And so the best sort of defense for me would be to wear full hijab and to look like a local woman. And so I think, you know, every conflict is very different. Um, I would say in Israel, Gaza, I would wear press sign if I were sent there. Um, I have not been sent there during this conflict. But I think it's every conflict is different. And, you know, you have to sort of make a judgment call. We had the great Don McCullen on. And I'm sure you've heard Don speak in the past. And maybe, maybe you heard that episode where he was very conflicted in thinking about his motivation 
for, for what he was doing. And I asked him, you know, that famous picture of a, an American Marine throwing a grenade. And I was trying to imagine the risk he had put himself in in getting that picture. And he, he was very frank. And he said, well, you know, we were... We wanted to be Robert Capo. We wanted that picture of, the, you know, of an American soldier. You know, we, it was the glory. Uh, and he said he was very uh, mixed. I mean, he's 88 now about what his motivation was. W what's your motivation for putting yourself in these positions of incredible risk to yourself? I think my motivation primarily is in bearing witness to what's happening on the ground, to what's actually happening on the ground, because as we've discussed, uh, you know, governments and people have uh, their own message they want to get out, and they, they sort of perpetuate a reality that sometimes doesn't exist. And so I think for me as a photographer, I'm always going there to document the reality, to document, you know, civilian casualties, uh, human rights abuses, humanitarian crises, and to ultimately hold leaders accountable to what's happening on the ground, you know, for their policies. It's also in the historical context. I think it's important to have a record of what's going on and to educate the public. You know, I think that there are various reasons. Don is an incredible photographer, as was Robert Kappa, and there are so many incredible frontline photographers out there working like that. That is not my forte, like being in the trenches with the troops. I will do it. I have done it for many years, but I don't think that's where I sort of excel as a photographer. I think for me, it's more about documenting the civilian toll and really showing the cost of war on women and children and innocent people. Lindsay, how do you feel about uh, the images that have been shown, first of all, about the October 7th atrocities, uh, how would you feel about publishing those or taking the photograph? Well, well, I mean, look, it, what happened on October 7th was horrific. I mean, it was a horrific terrorist attack. And I think it's important for the public to understand the extent of that attack, um, especially because it has led to this uh, ongoing bombardment of Gaza. And so I think it's important for people to understand the context and how bad it really was. In terms of the images, it's difficult because I think the public becomes inured to these scenes of violence. And now we're seeing uh, horrific scenes coming out of Gaza of babies being pulled out of the rubble and, and, you know, women and children just dead and injured day after day. And I do this for a living and I can barely look at these images. So I get worried that perhaps the public will stop paying attention because they can't handle it. You know, I think emotionally it's extremely difficult to look at these images day in and day out. There were allegations by the Israelis that some photographers who'd been freelance for mainstream organizations had actually got an alert about the attacks and had then gone in with some of the paramilitaries. I mean, do you know anything about what may have happened there? And the second question is, I mean, how, how would a photographer deal with such an invitation? W would you go along or would you say, you know what, I'd be compromised if I, if I did this? I mean, first of all, that allegation, uh, the Israeli government backtracked. Mm. They said, actually, we didn't really know that. So they themselves corrected themselves mm. and said, we sort of just threw it out there. And I think it was an incredibly irresponsible mm. allegation because mm. journalists risk their lives. Mm. We are out there. And it basically just increases the attacks against journalists in a conflict where 
over 60 journalists have already been killed, uh, mostly in Gaza, some in Israel, some in Lebanon. And I think it's very important to not uh, increase that rhetoric against journalists because we have a job to do. We are doing a service to the public. I can say, you know, obviously I was not there. I can't say what actually happened on the ground. But I can say that when I'm working in a war zone for whatever publication, usually it's the New York Times, but I'm freelance. The second I hear of something in a war zone, we run because we. it is very important to document things in the moment. And the longer you hesitate as a war photographer, the, the, the more likely it will be that you will miss that moment and that you will miss your window to get access because things shut down if it's an attack, if it's a bomb, whatever it is, a perimeter is generally set up very, very quickly after something happens. Mm. Um, I can't say sort of in a vacuum, how would I respond to an invitation? I would say I have embedded with the U.S. military. I've embedded with militaries around the world, and they are going into hostile situations to find insurgents, quote unquote, and attack them. Uh, I jumped out of a helicopter in the middle of the night in the heart of Taliban territory in the Korangal Valley in 2007. And the goal was not to make friends with the Taliban. The goal was obviously to kill the Taliban. So, you know, did I warn the Taliban? No. I mean, that's not my job as a journalist. My job as a journalist is to document what's happening. You know, if I had gotten word that a terrorist attack was about to happen, I don't think I would just go along. I would probably warn someone. I would probably say something, you know, but I don't think that journalists working in Gaza have that luxury because they don't have freedom of speech. They are not able to stand against Hamas. It is not a, a place in the world where there's free speech. And I think people need to be aware of that. Uh, I, well, I'm, if I could just come in there, I mean, I don't think that's been made clearer enough in some, certainly early on in, in the reporting, never mind the photojournalism. Alan? I was going to take you back to what, what you were saying about the, the images and how it's important to confront people with the reality of war. So I, I wrote a column last week remembering the first Iraq war, which you'll be too young to have um, certainly to have taken part in, perhaps even to remember, but there were, there were virtually no images from that. So the, the terrible shoot-up on the road to Basra, uh, and there was one image that the observer used. I'm sure you know it of a of a charred Iraqi in a in a, a vehicle with a with a, a, a almost like plasticine face. But nobody nobody really used that picture because it was too horrific. Mm. Cut to today, uh, and on my Instagram feed, I'm following this photographer Mataz Azeza in uh, in Gaza, and I forced myself to watch it because I think it's kind of our our duty to confront ourselves with what's going on. But it is horrific. And, and mm. so <laughs> talk, talk about our morality, the, the morality of, of being forced to confront the war, regardless of the, the political dimensions. Look, I think there's a fine line because I think, you know, my goal as a photographer is to try to get people to pay attention, is to get them to ask questions. What's going on? Why is this happening? How long can this go on? And if the images are too graphic, people will turn away. Um, so there's sort of a fine line of how do you tell a story uh, in a way that will garner sort of the the attention that you want, but without turning people away. I think it's difficult because we have publications, you know, we have the New York Times, the Observer, all of the, the publications sort of around the world. 
who make very difficult decisions every single minute of every day of what to publish. You know, what is okay by standards? What is okay ethically? Can you show pictures of 10 dead children without knowing, you know, who they are and whether their parents uh, will allow you to show that picture? So these are decisions that are made. But the reality in today's world is that social media has overtaken everything. And it doesn't matter because those images get out no matter what. And so I think it's okay for publications to uphold their standard. But at the end of the day, most people, uh, most young people at least, get their information, their their news, their photos on social media and on TikTok and on Instagram and on things that are not censored. Do you think that's broad? I mean, I, there's, a, there's a difference, I think, between Western sensibilities and the sensibilities of other parts of the world where they're more Absolutely. used to confronting images of death. Absolutely. Particularly, and, particularly in the Middle East. Yeah. And I used to struggle also when I covered uh, the Iraq war in 2003 and four, And I wasn't that young, I'm 50, <laughs> right? So I, um, so I, I covered the Iraq War in 2003 and 4, and I did used to struggle with the fact that many publications would publish pictures of dead Iraqis without a lot of sort of you know discussion and debate. Yet pictures of dead American soldiers had to be you know monitored and and signed off and a waiver that you needed permission from the next of kin and 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 so it felt like a double standard to me at that time. And I think that also persisted in the war in Afghanistan and in Dar. Four, uh, where I also covered in Congo and Yemen and Somalia and Syria and Lebanon and Israel. I mean, all of these places so that I've covered that there's always this struggle with like, can you show pictures of dead civilians? And is it more sensitive to show a dead American than someone else? Alan, I was struck by how Lindsay, in a funny way, in this new age of disinformation instant image, mass audience, speed and scale, she's actually still pursuing the old virtues of actually being there first on the ground to take the first shots. Yeah, she's um, she's a, a hero, I think. And, and, you know, as we get to the end of the year in media and all the all the bad things that we, we learn about journalism, which we can all rehearse in our sleep, the fact that there are these people who are so brave and who risk their lives purely to bear witness is, you know, one of the beacons of hope. And there are not many organizations that still can afford to do it. There are not many journalists still willing to put their lives on the lines. There are not many wars that are, in a sense, coverable any longer. Um, but as long as we have people like Lindsay who are willing to, to do that, I think we should be uh, incredibly grateful for them. This is Media Confidential, and coming up, more from the celebrated photojournalist Lindsay Adario, including the incredible story behind one of the defining images of the war in Ukraine. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On the Prospect podcast this week, our books editor, Peter Hoskin, and our assistant editor, Sarah Collins, debate the artistic merits of Love Actually in its 20th anniversary year. Pete, you don't like Love Actually. Why not? No, I very very much hate Actually. Um, (laughs) It's tremendously dated. It's like watching one of those very, very old Tom and Jerry cartoons or Popeye cartoons where they now put a warning at the beginning of them saying, like, the views expressed in this cartoon are not simpatico with modern beliefs. I couldn't agree less with what Pete's just said. I love Love Actually because... It was a film that I feel like defined my teenage years. Follow and subscribe to the Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber. And on this episode, we're featuring our interview with the celebrated conflict photographer, Lindsay Adaria, who tells us now about capturing one of the most horrifically memorable images of the war in Ukraine, which made the front page of the New York Times. I had seen images coming out um, of that area. It was basically the broken bridge uh, linking Bucha and Irpin, the suburbs west of Kiev, to Kiev. The Ukrainian military had broken that bridge intentionally to stop the Russian advance. And as the fighting got more and more intense in Bucha and Irpin, more and more civilians started fleeing across that bridge. And there was heavy, heavy fighting on the other side. And on the side where I was toward Kiev, it was supposed to be, quote unquote, safer because it was a known civilian evacuation route. And so I went early one Sunday morning in early March and was approaching the area. And I just had this feeling, I mean, obviously, I've been covering conflict a very long time. And I had this feeling like, actually, this feels quite dicey, like this is definitely not safe by any means. And so we were kind of hugging the wall and trying to stay behind cover as we approached the bridge. And then we saw wounded, uh, there were there were two wounded men, I think they were territorial defense with the Ukrainians being pulled to sort of behind a wall. So we ran across the street, got cover behind this sort of cement wall. And I was photographing the stream of civilians from behind the cover of that wall because it just didn't feel safe to be exposed. And I remember kind of looking in my viewfinder as like women were pulling their like young children in like little pink puffy coats and, you know, pulling them across this bridge and back to sort of relative safety. And I'm shooting and and getting more and more furious as I'm shooting, thinking like, these are kids, these are women, like, how can't they just keep the fighting elsewhere, you know? And then suddenly, a round came in, and it came in, I don't know, a few hundred meters off in the distance. And, and I think it was a mortar round. And so my security advisor said, Steve said, you know, would you like to leave? And I said, no, I mean, no, we're in like, we have cover and we're in a civilian evacuation route, like, let's stay. So very shortly after, another round came in and came in even closer. And at that point, I thought, okay, maybe they're actually bracketing onto the civilian evacuation route. And I, each time a round came in, I sort of dove behind this brick wall, like for cover. And I popped up and a third round came in literally 30 feet from us maximum. And it was incredibly chaotic. I was stunned that literally they were actually targeting this route. But I still had no idea 
what had happened in that attack. And so it was chaotic. It was dusty. There was, you know, all this dust was kicked up from the round. Uh, the man, the territorial defense soldier who was near us, sort of disappeared in this cloud of smoke. So I thought he had been killed. And so I was, you know, screaming obscenities and trying to figure out what was going on and shooting what I could from behind the safety of the wall. And then our security advisor, Steve, said, like, stay put, don't move. I was with Andrei Dubchak, who is an amazing Ukrainian videographer, photographer, and we were kind of getting our bearings. I thought I had been hit by something because I, my whole neck was sprayed with gravel. So I didn't know if I had actually been hit with shrapnel. So I'm asking him, am I bleeding? And he said no. So we kind of checked each other out. And then Steve finally called us across the street. When we came across the street, it was still very tense and the area was still obviously under fire. And I came upon the feet of these four bodies. And I couldn't, in my head, for some reason, I thought for sure they would only kill soldiers because this was very early on in the war. And Putin had repeatedly said, like, we do not target civilians and we will not kill civilians. And so I came upon these bodies and I was in shock and I was trying to figure out what what was before me. And I zeroed in on these little moon boots and I thought, oh, Jesus, like, I have a child, you know, the, that that's a child. And it dawned on me that I was looking at the bodies of what I thought was a family. My first instinct was to run and to not shoot just because it felt too graphic. It felt like, you know, there's no way the New York Times will ever run bodies of civilians. And this is a really dangerous place to be standing because we were fully exposed. And then I thought to myself, no, wait a minute, I just witnessed the intentional targeting of civilians. I watched the run up, I have to take pictures. And so I started shooting, thinking to myself, how can I shoot this in a way that it won't get censored or that it won't be, I won't be told it's too graphic. So I took a few frames, I moved around to the other side, and then basically worked my way around the scene, taking a few frames in each place, and then ultimately took the photograph that appeared on the cover of the New York Times. And then we made a run for it. We sort of joined the civilian evacuees, and we just sort of ran back to our car. A few more rounds came in. As we were making our way to our car, we had to dive for cover again, finally got out. I looked at the back of my camera when we got in the car, trying to figure out if, like, was I hallucinate? Like, did I really just witness this? Because in war, your mind sort of plays tricks on you, right? You, you know, for me, I always try to convince myself like, oh, it wasn't really that dangerous. I'm fine. Like, I wouldn't really put my life in danger that much. And so I looked on the back of my camera, and I realized like, what I had witnessed. And I immediately sent a message to the New York Times saying, I've just been in this attack. We're fine. I have this, like, I really, really want you to try to like consider running it. And then it, you know, basically was out of my hands. That's a that's a astonishing story, Lindsay. Can I ask you, I know this is a cliched question that you must be used to being asked, but how, how do you inoculate yourself from what you're seeing? I think in the moment, it's easier for me in the moment when I'm shooting and I have a job to do and I have to make pictures and I have sort of a camera in front of my face and I'm very focused on like trying to do what I need to do. Uh, and obviously trying to stay alive. So do it from a position that will give me the most sort of cover. 
but it's not like I it blocks everything out, obviously, because I live with those images and I live with that moment for a long time after that. And so I think in the moment, it's actually ironically easier because it's it's all very sort of frantic and adrenaline and, and I'm just very focused. And how do you look after yourself subsequently? What kind of PTSD yeah. precautions do you take? I mean, precautions. I mean, you know, I... I <laughs> Um, I talk about things very openly. Um, I definitely do not internalize things. I sort of very, I communicate a lot about what I see and what I feel. And, you know, I have an amazing family. My uh, husband used to be a journalist, so we talk things through all the time. And I think that's a really important part of my self-care is is talking about things and processing them, like really processing them, not only in the moment, but for a long time after. I think for me also, there are things physically I do for my sort of self-care that help. You know, I exercise uh, religiously, and that's something that for me helps kind of my mental state. It, it helps keep me very balanced. And I think, you know, I surround myself by really stable, wonderful people. I have an incredible community of not only journalists, but loved ones. Do you see any of your work having a, a kind of artistic dimension I mean, we talked about the terrible beauty of war and Don's work captures that, that elements of humanity that you see in the, in this terrible violence. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an odd thing for me to be told my pictures are beautiful when I'm often documenting the most horrific moments, right? Uh, but I also do witness incredible beauty. I witness generosity. I witness resilience. I witness all these things that happen in war as well. You know, I sell prints. I sell fine art prints. You know, I have a gallery. I And, and that presents conflict to me because it's like, here I am in these horrible places, yet people want my work to be hanging on their walls. You know, what is that? But for me, it's all about getting it out there and having people live with the things that I live with when I go to these places. And whether it's one split second that happens to be beautiful, whether it's that that reminds people or whether it's the overall story, I, you know, to me, it's good to have the work out there. Well, full disclosure, we do have two of your prints in our cottage in the countryside, <laughs> Lindsay. But um, having said that, would, what advice would you give to a young reporter, photojournalist who's coming in now into, into journalism? You know, it's not an easy profession, uh, and it certainly is not a lucrative profession, but it is one that is rewarding in so many other ways. I mean, I have never had a moment uh, since I was 21 and started photographing basically 30 years ago uh, where I've questioned my mission in life and like what I'm doing as a journalist and as a photojournalist. I've been so driven uh, to tell people's stories. And I think in that sense, it's incredibly gratifying. And the feedback I get is also incredibly gratifying. But I would tell a young photographer that if you want to do this work, you have to give up everything else for some time because it takes over your life and you cannot have a boyfriend or a girlfriend while you're starting out and you can't think that you're going to get weekends off or you can't think that you can work nine to five. No, you work 
24-7. You have to tell stories. You have to think about things. You have to be proactive. You have to think about the issues you care about, pitch stories, uh, go there, save your money, borrow money, do whatever you need to do. And I think it's important. It is not easy. Can you talk a little about the democratization of photography, that, that anybody now with an iPhone can shoot a really good picture? And as we've seen in Gaza, there are very few if any, professional Western agencies working inside Gaza at the moment. But yeah. nevertheless, there's a flood of images, which which are in many ways remarkable pictures being distributed very widely. Yeah. How, how does that change photography? Yeah, I would say no international journalists have been allowed into Gaza, uh, except with an Israeli escort. Um, but uh, the Palestinian photographers in Gaza have done an extraordinary job of documenting uh, this war, which is often killing their own family members at the same time. So it's, uh, you know, very brave work. I would say about the democratization of photography that it's wonderful people can use an iPhone and take really beautiful photos. But if you're consuming those photos as a source of information, you have to really know what the caption is, you know, what is the background of that photo, you know, do not take things at face value, because they're not trained journalists, uh, perhaps their loyalties are on a certain side, you know, perhaps they're not presenting the whole picture. And so it's very important, if you're consuming images to, to make sure you're consuming them without any background information. Um, and you're just consuming them as pictures, and not as a source of information. So the onus is on us as consumers of these pictures. I would curate your news source. I would, yes, if you want to use those photographs as a source of knowledge and information, you should know who is the person behind that picture and who, you know, who are they and what is the background? Because you can't just assume that every picture is what it says it is, you know. What does your own Instagram feed look like? It's mostly uh, stories that I'm covering. I'm I sorry, when just, I meant your consumption of Instagram. What, what, do, you, what do you look oh, at? Oh, my consumption. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of journalists, a lot of photographers, some sort of society people for like, I follow sort of very mindless feeds sometimes just when I'm in a war zone and I want to just not look at war, then I follow like celebrity stuff or something uh, um, I, do, I, I do recommend uh, dame helen mirren's uh, instagram it's very oh really good. okay yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i follow some celebrities sometimes just if i'm literally sitting on the front line and i and i don't want to be thinking about sort of war i'll follow someone who has nothing to do with war Final thing, just on on security, you've you've, you've mentioned. I think that the death toll in in, in uh, Gaza at the moment is is above sixty, and it, Israel and, and Lebanon, and Israel and Lebanon. Uh, it seems a, a futile question, but how, how do you protect yourself? How do you stay alive? I mean, one would hope that this discussion is being had at the highest levels of government around the world, right? That journalists are not targeted. I mean, I think what's happened is that most journalists who are killed doing their work are killed with impunity, and no one ever gets held accountable for killing journalists, whether that was Marie Colvin in Syria, you know, in Libya, there were journalists who were targeted. Uh, and killed, you know, I, I think there's a lot of discussion as to whether some of the journalists who have been killed in Lebanon and Gaza have been targeted. I always sort of have faith that people who make these decisions will not take them lightly and that I can, you know, 
say I'm a journalist and I'll be protected. Obviously, I, you know, as someone who's been kidnapped and beaten and sexually assaulted while taken hostage, you know, I, I, I know that's not always the case. But I think, I guess we can keep ourselves informed. We can about what's happening on the ground, where to be, where it's safest to be, whether we do put press, whether we don't put press, what cars to drive in. Are we in armored cars? What sort of flak jacket helmet we could wear, uh, where the nearest shelter is. You know, we never travel with anyone who is armed. That's very important to, to point out because people always ask me, do I carry a weapon? No. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be very vocal about the fact that, you know, one journalist killed is one too many. And is your fear that the cost of the security and the cost of the insurance in an industry where the money is running out or the money is not anywhere like it used to be, will in the end make your kind of job impossible? Well, I mean, I, you know, I basically at this point, I basically only cover war for the New York Times because they take security very, very seriously and they won't skimp on it. So I think for me, I make decisions of who I will cover dangerous assignments for. Yeah, of course I worry. I worry that journalism is 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 harder and harder to do i mean and to get funding for you know my next assignment i'm doing in part with a grant from national geographic it's it's you know i think increasingly a lot of us are relying on grants because it's just there's very little money in journalism to send us the places we want to go so i think you know, we can take all the possible precautions and work for publications that are still taking this very seriously and, you know, taking responsibility for their people on the ground. Well, that, that was so Im impressive. I'm on the board of the, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and the toll in Israel, Gaza at the moment is well over 60 journalists who have been killed. And that tells you about the kind of courage that's needed to take these kinds of pictures. For me, what really was memorable was listening to Lindsay and the decision-making under fire in the run-up to taking those shots of the family so cruelly targeted by the Russians and killed uh, in plain daylight. And it's amazing to me that in that moment, really a personal peril, grave personal peril, you got inside the mind of the photojournalist on the conflict scene, how she's weighing up risk, but also how she's weighing up the best shot. And there isn't a tension between the two. She's also trying to figure out, you know, the boundaries of what's tasteful or not, but also photographing reality. It was, it was really astonishing. Lionel, you must have had the same experience as I did as an editor, where you're sitting slightly helplessly in London as your journalists are out there doing incredibly dangerous things. I remember Maggie O'Kane, incredibly brave Guardian journalist, once ringing me up from a bus station in East Timor, very bloody conflict, uh, and saying, look, I just don't know whether to go. I, I know there's, there's fighting going on near where I am. I, I can get there. What do you think? And I think as an editor, all you can say is n no picture, no story is worth a life. I can't. I can't give you a, a judgment on on the situation on the ground, but I think as an editor, you have the responsibility just to say to give them permission not to cover the story if they're wavering. Hundred percent, Alan. I certainly had that conversation with reporters on the ground in conflict zones, saying, "I do not want you taking a risk which will endanger your own personal life. The story isn't 
so important and so overwhelming that we end up with a victim at the FT as a reporter. So I have had one instance where a journalist on the front line, better not say who he was, but when I was news editor, uh, I actually said, look, I, I think you're obviously the best expert, but I don't think this sounds. And then the phone went dead and he carried on anyway. Great journalist. But uh, there we are. I think to be fair, the, the training and the, the security backup is much better than it was certainly when I, I'm, I was sent to cover the Iran-Iraq war as somebody who'd never done any war training. And I was wandering around this battlefield in Basra, luckily came back in one piece. The, the very next day, there was a, a, a French photographer had his foot blown off uh, walking onto a mine, and nobody had told us about any of these risks. And I think nowadays, nobody gets sent to a war zone unless they've done hostile environment training. Yeah, I, I certainly was had a couple of times hostile environment uh, people around me. I remember in Pakistan, um, saw the head of the Pakistan Air Force, got it was about to get on the Russian helicopter, f- fly down the Swat Valley. Word got back home that the editor was uh, on a Soviet helicopter and flying over Pakistan and word got back. I don't think you should be doing this. I mentioned it to the correspondent. He said, I've spent three weeks commandeering this helicopter. You're going. <laughs> Anyway, none of this deflects from the, the, the unbelievable bravery and, and unwavering eye that Lindsay Adaria has, and it's been great to have her on today. If you've got any questions for us about the media, email them to Media Confidential, all one word, at Prospect Magazine, all one word, dot co dot uk, and we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlic. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter slash X2 at MediaConfPod. And next Thursday's episode is the last one of the year. It's a review of the year with Sky News's Beth Rigby joining us. So don't miss that. And it's happy holidays from me. And it's a happy holiday from me. Happy holiday from me.